I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. 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 I don't like that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Hello and welcome to Book Jockey again. We're off to a kind of a rough start. That first episode was pretty, pretty, pretty boring. And um, I really need to get in the swing of things of feeling comfortable speaking by myself in a room to a phone um, with the sort of pressure that perhaps maybe three strangers might listen to this um, because they're just doing a search for Dracula or something random. They like accidentally come upon this and they know how much pressure that is for me to impress them and, and seem so cool and educated and smart and funny. And I'm really none of those things unless... I'm pretty drunk, um, so I think the answer is to probably drink more, probably just pretend I'm alone, which I am, or talking to a friend and be myself, and um, also to just not have too much of this kind of intro babble because no one cares, and to just jump right into the the meat of the matter, the book. So that being said, um, let's continue on with Powers of Darkness, the lost version of Dracula, the adaptation by Vladimir Osmondson, adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. As mentioned last time, this is uh, from 1901, and... Um, the I'm not going to get into the whole introduction, which was written by um, Dracula scholar Hans de Roos. Um, however, what I will do is read his bullet-pointed list of some of the most significant uh, differences between Dracula, Bram Stoker's version, and Osmondson's adaptation. And occasionally you'll hear me like burp like that. Please excuse me. I know it's gross. I'm drinking some beer. As I mentioned, you know, trying to get that liquid courage up. Um, so let's see here if we can find it. There was a bulleted list of what are the major differences. All right. So things that are found in both, no, this is not a list of differences. This is a list 
of similarities between Bram Stoker's notes, his preparatory notes before he wrote Dracula, and Mokmirkrana. Going back into that conspiracy theory of whether or not um, Stoker shared his notes with Osmondson, um, uh, saying, you know, hey, will you please, you know, on the down low, just publish... Sorry, my dogs are barking for absolutely no reason. Um, publish, you know, what I would really like to publish um, under your name for a purely Icelandic audience of newspaper readers, um, which seems kind of unlikely. Maybe it wasn't as uh, conspiratorial as that, of maybe the idea of, hey, let's, you know, try to get something published on the down low that my publishers won't allow me to publish, but maybe is a little bit more innocent uh, in the sense that they were friends. He respected him as an author and just shared his notes and said, this is fun, you know. So, um, and it says here, so I'll just go ahead and just dive in. And what will come as a surprise to every Dracula scholar plot elements that were described in Stoker's early preparatory notes for the novel, but did not appear in the book, are found in Mokmirkrana. Again, that's the Icelandic title, which translates to Powers of Darkness. The notes feature a deaf and mute housekeeper woman acting as the Count's servant. Exactly such a woman is described in Mokmirkrana. The early notes indicate that the Count visits the deceased Lucy as a regular guest. The diseased Lucy as a regular guest. Such visits are reported in the Icelandic version, while in Dracula, the Count enters Lucy's house only stealthily or by force. In Stoker's original plan, the Carfax house, remember the house in London, and Seward's Asylum are located in London itself, just like in Mokmirkrana. Only in the 1897 typescript version of Dracula, these buildings were removed to Purefleet, 20 miles east of Piccadilly. I mean, okay. The notes repeatedly mention a blood-red secret room in Count Dracula's residence. In Mokmirkrana, Harker discovers a secret temple in the castle, where bloody, ri bloody rituals take place. The Carfax house also contains a hidden room. In Dracula, no such secret space is mentioned. Originally, Stoker planned for the appearance of police detective Cotford. In Dracula, the police are not active at all. In Mokmirkrana, however, we find police detective Barrington assisted by his colleague Tellet. The murder of Lucia's housemaid is also actively investigated by the police. And I believe that Lucia is the name for Lucy in Mokmirkrana. The Stoker notes mention a dinner for 13 people at Dr. Seward's house, where the Count arrives as the last guest. In Mokmirkrana, an evening party takes place in Carfax with Seward as the only English guest. Although the Count is a host now, he again enters last. 
In his notes, Stoker refers to Dr. Seward as a mad doctor, so the editors of the Fasamil edition had to ask themselves whether or not Stoker intended Seward to be as mad as his patient Renfield. In Makhmirkrana, Dr. Seward, of all characters, actually loses his mind. If we are not to prepare to accept these seven similarities between Stoker's notes and the new plot elements of Makhmirkrana as a mere coincidence, Bram Stoker must have passed his early plot ideas to Vladimir. And then they show some of these scans of the handwritten notes about Dracula, and they do indeed uh, appear to be a bulleted list, very similar to the ones that we've just read. So let me go ahead and dive into the preface. And as we mentioned, that was another one of the differences between the published Dracula of 1897 by Bram Stoker and the 1901 Powers of Darkness is that um, it's it copies the preface as signed by Bram Stoker, and I, the most trans, uh, readers assume that was just a translation of Bram Stoker's words. Um, but actually, the preface itself is also different and references uh, modern crimes of the time that weren't referenced in the original preface, including um, <clears throat> some of the fear that was happening during that time period uh, regarding the... Uh, a killer that was around just before the time of Jack the Ripper um, and may have been in that kind of hysteria around London, a fear of a kind of dark force may have been what inspired uh, Bram Stoker a bit to write about a kind of you know evil murderer getting away with things in the dark of night of the crowded London. Uh, and what they called this were the Thames Torso Murders, in which uh, it was found uh, that around the Thames River Valley village, um, numerous parts from bodies were showing up around various parts of London um, until a co complete body minus head and upper chest was reconstructed. And they began kind of uh, associating this as one murderer with them. Um, uh, and a putting the plot together that this was a serial killer. Um, it says here that uh, they, yeah, they're referred to as the Thames Torso Murders from 1887 through 89, also known as the Thames Mysteries. Um, it says here, the second victim of the Thames series was discovered in September of 1888 in the middle of the hunt for the witch chapel murderer. On September 11th, an arm belonging to a female was discovered in the Thames off Pimlico, and another arm was found upon the Lambeth Road around October 2nd. The torso of a female minus the head was discovered. And it says, although no more details of the Thames torso murders are given, in the London part of Makhmirkrana, it is not hard to imagine that the Count's London vampire coven, abducting fresh victims for their satanic rituals, disposed of dead bodies by dumping them into the river, you know, similar to the Thames murders, especially if the Count, Count's Carfax house was located in London, which is not far from the first 
Torres murder victim was found. If nothing else, the fact that the murderer could not be found seems to comfort Vladimir's count, who apparently relishes the idea that in the darkness and fog of London streets, his own crimes may go unsolved. Last but not least, the preface's mention of the secret police only makes sense in the context of the international political scandal that must have followed the uncovering of the Count's machinations, a plot point unique to Mokhtamirkhana, and another indication that Stoker was aware of the planned innovations. Again, that's what that's referring to, is something we kind of touched upon last episode, that this Count Dracula in in Mokhtamirkhana is more about sort of a, um, it has machinations, as they say, is more about kind of a, a world domination. His, his sights are much more global and menacing. It's not personal, like how it was for, you know, Jonathan Harker and Mina and, and Bram Stoker's book. It was much more about like, I'm just going to kind of take over London and I'm going to take over governments and I'm going to have such much more of a global um, and broad speaking revenge story uh, just for hating the world. Another reason why the book, the, the scholar references the significance of bringing up the themes and murders is that it shows um, that Bram was writing this unique preference, preface with a kind of, um, at the same time, he was kind of reading stories in the news and thinking about them. Um, and that would have been unique knowledge to Bram because uh, as a scholar did research, there wasn't a lot of discussion in any Icelandic news source about the Thames mysteries or Thames murders. So how would this this translator, um, Osmundson, Vladimir Osmundson, be able to know about these Thames murders or why would he go out of his way to write this? And so the theory, the conspiracy is that Bram Stoker himself wrote this preface and then gave it to Osmundson to include in this adaptation. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. So author's preface from the, now this is the name of the Icelandic newspaper that this was published in. Again, I mentioned briefly last time that this was a serial that was posted uh, in every issue of the newspaper for a while until it was compiled into a book given away to subscribers as a gift. Um, the name of this, the newspaper is F-J-A-L-L-K-O-N-A-N. I don't know how J's are pronounced in Icelandic. Um, I guess Bjork is kind of a, a Y sound, right? So Fjallkonen, um, issue number one, January 13th, 1900, author's preface. While reading this story, the reader can see for himself how these papers have been combined to make a logical whole. I had to do no more than to remove some minor events that do not matter to the story, and so let the people involved report their experiences in the same plain manner in which these pages were originally written. For obvious reasons, I have changed the names of people and places, but otherwise I leave the manuscript unchanged, in accordance with the wish of those who have considered it their solemn duty to present it to the eyes of the public. Um, 
the book here in the notations notes this, and I think it's 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 common, uh, kind of common critique uh, on this preface, even for the Dracula version. The the sentence there, for obvious reasons, I have changed the name of people and places. Um, so what Bram's kind of going for here is a is hey, I'm the author. I'm kind of breaking the fourth wall, and and writing to you directly, dear reader. And uh, letting you know that this is a true story and that I just had to, you know, change the name to protect the innocent. Um, No, that wouldn't be obvious if it were true, because if this were true, people would be shouting from the rooftops to try to get this information out there. Hey, we encountered a a fucking vampire who who was fucking killing people by sucking their blood out. We wouldn't want to, like, protect the anonymity of those who came in contact with the vampire, they too would be like, yo, let's talk about this. Let's write about this. You guys want to publish me? You want to do a scientific study on me? You want to like learn more about this? Because I'm pretty freaked out too here. So that's kind of interesting line for obvious reasons. I've changed the name and people and places. But this is pretty cool. Like I, I, I have to do some research on the this um, literary device of of uh, acting like breaking that fourth wall as an author and acting like something uh, is a true story when it is a work of fiction. Um, you know, my first instinct is you know the uh, the you know the movie Fargo, uh, Coen Brothers coming up the beginning of the film, uh, you know, saying this is a true story for this act of fiction, um, which I think is marvelous and I, I love that 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 tricked many viewers for for years uh, after that um, who didn't know any better um, and I like this as well and they also kind of reminds me of obviously War of the Worlds um, the radio program of just kind of just tricking people into believing something was real and I, I, I'd have to do some research too is how many people read Dracula in the beginning and were kind of um thrown by this preface. That was pretty interesting, but uh, I'll I'll continue. To the best of my belief, there is no doubt whatsoever that the events related here really took place. However, unbelievable and incomprehensible they may appear in light of common experience. And I am further convinced that they must always remain to some extent unknowable, although it's not inconceivable that continuing research in psychology and the natural sciences may all of a sudden provide logical explanations for these and other such strange happenings, which neither scientists nor the secret police have yet been able to understand. I emphasize again that the mysterious tragedy described here is completely true by all appearances, italicized for emphasis, although in certain points, of course, I have reached a different conclusion than the people who are recounting it here. But the events are such as such are irrefutable, and so many people are aware of them that they will not be denied. This series of crimes has not yet passed from the public's memory. This series of crimes, which seems incomprehensible, but appear to stem from the same root and have created in their time as much horror within the public as the infamous murders by Jack the Ripper occurred a short time later. Some will still recall the remarkable foreigners for whom many on end played a dazzling role in the life of the aristocratic circles here in London, and people will probably remember them 
that at least one of them suddenly disappeared inexplicably, that no trace of him was ever seen again. And so that's an interesting little mention there saying that not only is he claiming that this is true, but that uh, that the, probably the people who lived in London remember this, this raga muffin crew of Romanians kind of charging in and acting all funny with their accents and people uh, would go missing when they would come in contact with them. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. All the people who are said to have played a part in this remarkable story, willingly or unwillingly, are widely known and well-respected. Both Thomas Harker and his wife, again, they, you know, they give different names to the characters uh, in this version, um, who is an extraordinary woman, and Dr. Seward are my friends, and have been so for many years, and I have never doubted that they would tell the truth. And the highly regarded scientist who appears under a pseudonym here may likewise be too famous throughout the educated world for his real name, which I prefer not to mention, not to remain hidden from the public, especially from those people who have learned firsthand to appreciate and respect his brilliant mind and masterly skill, though they no more adhere to his views of life than I do. But in our times, that's a really long fucking sentence. But in our times, it should be clear to all serious thinking men that, quote, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Signed, London Street, August 1898, Bram Stoker. All right, we're on a roll here. Let's dive into uh, part one, the castle and the Carpathians. Chapter one, Thomas Harker's journal, written in shorthand. May 3rd. Finally, I arrived here after a speedy journey across Europe by express train. I left Munich at 8.30 p.m. on the 1st of May, arrived in Vienna the next morning. From there to Budapest, a strange city, although I only saw little of it. There, it felt as though I were saying goodbye to the West and Western civilization, as Eastern culture came to the fore. I spent the night in Klausenburg, got there yesterday evening after dark. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and continued through the mail coach. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. This is, that's the problem I think I'm going to have recording this is that I'm all too fucking human to do a podcast. I burp and I will be smacking on food and you'll hear me sucking on a marijuana pipe and slurping down beers and coughing and sneezing and mispronouncing words and, and slurring words and stuttering and, um, yeah, I'm going to take another sip of my loud beer. Um, and there's going to be people who listen to this and be like, gross, what the fuck is this bitch doing? Why is she making me sit through this? And um, the answer is that uh, you need to get over it. Okay, so... <clears throat> 
I spent the night in Klausenberg, got there yesterday evening after dark, and continued with the mail coach to the Bargo Pass this morning. Today I have gone over hilly country, very different from the plains of Hungary. Here and there I could see a village or a castle on the hilltops, and occasionally the road crossed gushing rivers. At the coach stops I saw many rural people gathering, clad in all sorts of attire. I wish that I could have drawn some sketches of life here around me. Oddest of all to the Slavics seemed to me. They wear wide trousers with shorts over top, shirts over top, and belts around the middle. Jeez, oh, what oddballs. They wear their belts around the middle of their shirts. Crazy. Their hair falls to the shoulders and their eyes are black and fiery, which makes them look like bandits. Other than that, however, they seem harmless. Okay, Mr. Thomas Harker, you seem a little bit judgmental. While I waited in London for orders from my employer, I did not forget to visit the British Museum to gain some knowledge about Transylvania from books and maps, as up to this point I knew next to nothing about it. I learned that my destination was in the eastern part of the country, somewhere up in the Carpathian Mountains, close to the borders between Transylvania, Moldavia, and Bukovina. In other words, in one of the wildest, least known corners of Europe. As the maps they make in Transylvania cannot be compared to those created for the war office back home in England, I could not locate Castle Dracula on any of them. The post town is called Bistritz, and the castle is close to the Borgo Pass. Transylvania's population is a colorful mixture of varied nations, just like in Hungary, at least according to the experts at the British Museum. They say that the country is a melting pot of Germans, of Vlachs, Magyars, Czechs, Slovaks, Gypsies, Slovenes, and God knows how many other diverse peoples. Religions are nearly as numerous as the Znithides, and a part of that, the semicircle of the Carpathian, so to speak, harbors all the superstitions and backwards beliefs of this world, along with the plenty of obscure tales, archaic myths, and customs passed down over the centuries. Here the tribes met in ancient times, when they were still moving from place to place, and today, Western culture and the occultism of the East still intersect there, like two rivers meeting, forming a vortex, where much of what has elsewhere long ago sunk deep into oblivion still swirls near the surface, emerging where we least expect it. This is all very interesting, but unfortunately, I am too much the lawyer, and thus engaging in such studies whether national or historical is not my innate strength. The Count has sent me detailed instructions about how to organize my trip, recommending the Golden Crown Guesthouse to me, which he believes to be the best place to stay in this area. I followed his directions and soon found that they had been expecting me, for at the very entrance I was met by an old woman with a kind face, wearing an ordinary peasant dress, she bowed low and asked in a more or less understandable German if I was Mr. Englishman. I said that I was, and I told her my name. She looked at me closely and then said something to a man in the next room. 
He came at once with a letter in his hand, and I immediately recognized the Count's handwriting, which is very queer. It was written in English, just as were his letters to my lawyer's office in London, where I work, and I read it as follows. Dear Sir, welcome to the Carpathians. I, anxiously expe I am anxiously expecting you. I really should like try and like do some research on how to do a Transylvanian Romanian accent for this book. I mean, it seems kind of a cop out that I'm just going to be like reading Dracula's voice like normal. Okay. Um, it says, I'm actually expecting you at seven tomorrow evening. The mail coach will leave from Bistritz for Bukovina, and I have booked you a fare on it. I will have my carriage wait at the Borgo Pass to bring you to my home. I hope that you have not strained yourself too much during the journey and that you will enjoy your visit to our beautiful country as you are bound to stay here for both our benefits, bound to stay here for both our benefits, and am your friend, Dracula. All of this sounds fine. I'm growing curious, as it's not every day one meets a Hungarian, or rather a Transylvanian nobleman, who lives in an old castle in some deserted mountains at the end of the civilized world, yet writes letters in flawless English with all the urbanity of a cultivated scholar, while negotiating with solicitors and real estate agents to buy a house in the heart of London. Such a man must be remarkable. And some of the notes here... It says that Stoker took the name Dracula from a book by Wilkinson about the history of Moldavia and Wallachia, but understood it as the de de denomination of a whole dynasty or clan. The Draculitis, named after Vlad II Dracul, a member of the Order of Dragon, ruled over Wachalia. From the 1970s on, Professors Raymond McNally and Radu Florette Flore, Florescu propagated the idea that Stoker had heard the cruel reputation of Vlad Dracula III, the Impaler, the son of Vlad II, and with this in mind had picked him as the model for his vampire character. In their book, Prince of Many Faces, they even presented a, main tra a mistranslation of a medieval poem by Michael Beheim, who, according to them, describes Vlad III as drinking the blood of his enemies, while the Count in his conversation with Harker actually refers to a void vote, I don't know what that means, whom we recognize as Vlad III, Stoker neither knew the name Vlad nor his bloodthirsty reputation. In chapter 25 of Dracula, Van Helsing and Mina identify their enemies of that other of his race who in later age again and again brought his forces over the great river into Turkey land. This might be a reference to Michael the Brave, or whom Stoker took notes from Willickson's book. In the novel itself, however, it appears as if Stoker preferred this other to remain anonymous. Um, yeah, that kind of goes supports what I've been reading too is that basically Stoker knew less about Vlad the Impaler than we think he did um, and the inspiration that he took was very minor at best 
uh, he didn't really, the, the inspiration was a conglomeration of a lot of vampire lore, um, but it, whereas I personally love the reference to Vlad the Impaler in any shape or form by using the name Dracula, um, in terms of really getting into his history, um, it was pretty loose in terms of inspiration. Um, the What they're referring to there is that the ruler of Wachalia, his father, Vlad II, um, was a member of the Order of Dragon, and that's where that name Dracul comes from. So it was more of a title than a name. And Dracula was what Vlad III went by, and it simply meant son of Dracul. Um, so it was, again, more of a title and a personalized title that he gave himself. Um, and so the reference to Dracula uh, as being a sort of surname uh, is a bit off there, but um, but interesting nonetheless. The... What they're referring to in that note about the mistranslated poem. So there is a medieval poem, as they mentioned by a, a author, Michael Baheim, I believe it's pronounced B-E-H-E-I-M, uh, who talked about Vlad the Impaler and how he would, um, you know, just basically pour the blood of his enemies. Um, and the... A specific quote was that, and this was a poem, kind of like um, how jokers and jesters would uh, be entertain the uh, the the royalty of the time. So Michael Behind was a court poet for the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick the Third, and he wrote that Vlad would wash his hands in the blood of his enemies, which is more kind of like a just a a phrase. Like I, I wash my hand in this because it, it means so little to me um, in terms of their their life and their souls. Uh, however. Uh, you know, this is the oral tradition, and many poets and other people would continue to spread this poem, and there was a mistranslation of it at some point in time, and this line about washing his hands in the blood of his enemies, and I don't know if it referenced, like, how he would wash the hands or in what vessel he would wash the hands, was literally mistranslated as Vlad dipping his bread into a blood, and in, in, dipping his bread into a bowl and drinking the blood of his dead enemies. Thus, eventually associating Vlad with vampiric tendencies. Um, and is the association of being a bloodthirsty tyrant being quite literal. Um, this literally, when I found out about this, blew my fucking mind that... Uh, this whole time, I thought that the, the association between Vlad as a vampire uh, was essentially made up by Bram Stoker. Um, and I didn't realize that this association was long, uh, you know, long established back to medieval times through this poet who, um, 
you know, someone mistranslated. And what kind of fucking mistranslation is that? It's vastly different to say I wash my hands in the blood versus I literally then had the blood in a bowl and then dipped my bread into that bowl to sop up the blood and then ate the bread. That's a pretty wild mistranslation. And I can't imagine reading something in another language and thinking, yep, that's what that says. So that's pretty fascinating to think about any kind of oral tradition and how mistranslations completely have changed uh, an entire folklore and lore over time. Um, and whether or not it was intentional or accidental or what, that's just fascinating that not only did that happen, but that scholars can then go back retroactively and pinpoint the time in which this was done and how. Um, I will say that uh, I personally feel a lot of sympathy for uh, the Romanian people who despite Vlad the Impaler's um, horrific reputation as a, again, a bloodthirsty tyrant, a killer who impaled thousands, um, he did seemingly restore order to Wachalia and to the, the areas of like Transylvania and Romania um, and uh, f- fought off groups of Turks who were attempting to take over said areas. Um, And so locals did for a long time erect statues of Vlad. There might still be statues of Vlad the Impaler um, and saw him as a sort of hero. And here comes these fucking British poets in medieval times. uh, And then later on, Bram Stoker just really driving home this thing that he is a He's a fucking vampire monster, which um, doesn't really seem fair. Doesn't really seem necessarily right. But all right, we are at 38 minutes. So I'm going to uh, stop recording. And thank you, dear listeners, for enjoying and partaking in episode two.